Welcome to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. I'm Daniela, and this podcast is about my personal and also about a lot of other people's enthusiasm for art. Art can touch on all parts of life, and therefore we talk about all parts of life. I hope to get you on board and to tell you interesting stories you enjoy listening to. For our international listeners, the podcast will be held mostly in English. We're recording via the internet, so please excuse any glitches and sound quality. Episode 43, recorded September 23, 2021. My guest today is Judith Bernstein, artist and activist based in New York City. She is a founding member of AIR Gallery, the first gallery devoted to showing women artists. And she was an early member of other activist groups like, for example, the Guerrilla Girls. Welcome, Judith. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be with you, Daniela, and your audience. Thank you, Judith. You were born in 1942 when yes. the world was a different place, especially for women. And before we talk about your development as an artist, I would like to know how you grew up and how American society of the 50s and 60s when you were young shaped your attitude towards being a woman in this world and how it came that you chose art as your means of expression. You know, it's a very funny thing because when you're born at a certain time, you don't know the world as any other thing. And I came from a very bourgeois background, very middle-class background. My parents really knew nothing about art. My father was a little bit of a uh, Sunday painter. He had a little group downstairs in the basement, and they would get together once, once a week or once every couple of weeks to do some painting. But I actually, I took the world as it was. I didn't really think about anything else. Okay. Meaning I, I was not a feminist in a certain way. I kid around and I was, I was a feminist when I came out of the womb and all that kind of thing. But that's really, that's really not true. Um, when I came out of the womb, I came out like anyone else. That's all. You know? <laughs> yeah. But I realized as time went on that I didn't want, frankly, the life my parents had. My parents had a very bourgeois life. They had a very small life because we lived in a small town in New Jersey on the coast. It was a beach town, but I wanted a larger life. And I knew that I didn't want the life my parents had mm -hmm. so that I was clever as a kid and I was funny. I was amusing and stuff like that. And I did want something else. So I remember watching TV. You'd see comedians on TV and I would go head to toe with those guys, those guys, you see. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that the world was run by men. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even think about it that much at the time. When I was an undergraduate, I went to Penn State. And I went to Penn State and I was in art education. Now, my parents did not want to send me to school to learn to um, just be an artist because they saw no future in that. Mm -hmm, yeah. They wanted to make sure that I had some way, some means of support. So as a result, I was in art education. And as I started working, my goals and my interests got larger and larger. And that's when actually you learn one thing and then you go to something else and then you go to something else. So after I was at Penn State, I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school. 
And most people said, oh, why go to graduate school? You know, you want to get married and have kids, you know, right away and all that. And the thought was just so unappealing, I might add. So I had a friend and she was also in our education and she wanted to go to Yale. And she wanted to go to Yale because she wanted to be in scene design. Her name was Carrie Robbins, and she did go into scene design and costume design. And she said, oh, why don't you apply to Yale? I went there for an interview, and the place looked, you know, the building was new, and it looked so great, and that would be fun and all that. I didn't know what to do with my life, so this was perfect. So I applied to Yale, and I did get a full scholarship. That's what my destination was. And it turned out that unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize how pivotal Yale would be. And it was an entree into the art world, which I was not aware of. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I just kind of fell down the rabbit hole like Alice in Wonderland, and it just worked out for me in that way. And it shaped you also then. It shaped me completely. That's exactly right. And when you go to Yale, now when I was there, It was an all-male school. It's not like it is now. It was an all-male school. And the art department, when I got there, there were only three women and all the rest were men. Maybe there were 20 people or so in, in that class. How did that feel? Well, you know something? When I was younger, I thought, oh, isn't this great? There's oh. more men for me. You know, <laughs> you don't realize that this is actually... <laughs> This, this is a hindrance. This is mm -hmm. not a help, by the yeah, way. Yeah. But nevertheless, I was, I was naive in terms of that. The art school always had, the graduate school always had women in the graduate school. It wasn't an all-male enclave. Mm -hmm. I didn't find discrimination when I was at Yale. At least that's what I felt, that I was treated like everyone else. But when I left Yale, I was very aware of the fact that I was in a very special environment that was not the way the world worked. Therefore, there were a lot of glass ceilings. So when I got to New York, and I went directly to New York from Yale and New Haven, Connecticut, there were very few women who were showing in galleries. There would be a, uh, an entire gallery like Leo Castelli. There would be no women. There would be a lot of galleries that had no women that were represented. Later on, you know, they had one or two. But it was a different time frame. And I know that when I was at Penn State as an undergraduate, there were three men to every woman. That was in 1960, three mm. men to every woman. And I went to Yale. There was an all-male school undergraduate. So then when I went to New York, four women approached me having to do with, let's start a woman's gallery. First gallery AIR that started. Did you first try to get into like a male yes. gallery yes. And, they, and they all rejected you? Yes. All the places rejected me because my work was really an anomaly in terms of what was going on. And my work was very sexual and political, which is what my work is about. Was it already penises and screws? Yes. Well, actually, at that time, my work was a lot of screws. It was fuck Vietnam. It was the Vietnam time frame. And in that time frame, I used the penis as a male power symbol, which, of course, it is. So I, I had these and people were nervous. They would kind of laugh or titter, you know, 
or they considered it a joke. I remember that I had gone to a, one of the galleries, one of the hot galleries, and I said, oh, my work is, you know, my work is sexual. And this guy said, oh, I'm only the accountant, but I'd love to see what you do, you know. So people didn't take it seriously. Do you think it was also because they thought like, oh, she's a woman and, and women don't sell, and then she's doing this sexual political kind of stuff, which is even worse? Do you think it would have been easier if you would have been a man? Well, first, if I would have been a man, I would have been taken seriously, and no one would have giggled or laughed, by the way, to start with. Yeah. And also, there were hardly any women that were represented in, in any of these galleries. Yeah, yeah that they were not taken seriously, so that it was a complete anomaly that any woman would be coming in there and asking for, you know, to show their, their work in their space. And so I had gone to a few galleries and uh, a couple of them, Ivan Karp from Castelli liked my work. And he said something about, had I come there earlier, he might've put the work into an exhibition. There were some good things to it, too. And there was another gallery that had some interest and stuff like that. But there was no real interest, any serious interest, let's put it that way. And then you met this group of women. Well, Lucy Lippard, a critic, had a file of art done by women. And these four women, Barbara Zucker, Sue Williams, a different Sue Williams than the one that's well known now, Mary Gregoriadis and Dottie Addy. They picked out 20 people, by the way, and they went to their studios. At that time, they tried to figure out a name for the gallery. Most names were, you know, the owner of the gallery or the director or something like that. So I suggested twat, 20 women artists together. Which I find really hilarious. I didn't actually even take it seriously myself at that time because it was so far ahead of the times. And then Howard Dina Pendel, which was part of the 20 women, she suggested Jane Eyre, and then we used Eyre. And it was good because of the fact that the gallery um, had a conceptual bent, and Eyre was good. And Eyre stood for Artist in Residence, and it was what they would put on all the artist studios. So therefore, if there was a fire that the fire department would go and go up to the fifth floor, artist in resident five, go up to the fifth floor and make sure that the artist wasn't burnt, that kind of thing. So we started, we started with that. How was this relation with the women that started? Did you support each other, that you had a common goal, or was it very individualistic? How could I imagine that? It was actually a combination. We had a common goal because we all wanted to exhibit our work and we wanted more. Mm -hmm. We were not getting stuff. And the only choices we had really was to show within this gallery. And it was the first gallery that showed women artists, all women artists. Now, you know, women never got enough. Mm -hmm. Also, everyone was individualistic. Everyone wanted their own space. They wanted their own stuff. So therefore, it was competitive too. But they were supportive because we all had this common goal. So that was the good thing about AIR. And without that, most of us would not have had a career. We had individual goals. But the women were great, by the way. They all wanted a lot more. And the art world was very sympathetic to women. It was a time in 1972, that's 1972, when a lot of women were like myself. 
They had gone to art school. We had the same backgrounds of the guys, and we had no outlet to show our work. So it was very important for us to exhibit. And also, it was good that we at, you copyright the work when you show it at a certain period of time. You showed it in 72. Yeah, you make it your own. You not only say that you did it in 72, you have showed it publicly in 72, that kind of thing. So after I had done this Fuck Vietnam series, because when I was at Yale, I read an article in the New York Times, and the New York Times said, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, an Albie play, was taken directly from bathroom graffiti. So I immediately went into the bathroom at Yale. In the man's bathroom. <laughs> yes, the men's bathroom. I got the idea what scatological graffiti was about. And I used that. Now, I didn't directly take stuff. And I had these great guys that were writers. And they were a lot of fun. And they would tell me all kinds of limericks. And uh, the limericks are stuff that I got from books that I didn't make up. But the other stuff I made up, this may not be heaven, but Peter hangs out here. There once was a man from Nantucket who had a dick so long you could, he could suck it. And all kinds of stuff, by the way. And it was a lot of fun. But how did you originally get into this whole dick and screw theme? Was there an Eureka moment where you said, yeah, I have to use that kind of imagery? Well, what happened was when I knew that the imagery that I had, that going into the men's room was a light bulb moment. I can use that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Was that also about like entering a forbidden space a bit? Yes. It's a, it's a forbidden space. It's a space you've never been in. Mm -hmm. And it's a space that you're having a lot of fun being an observer. Mm -hmm. So I was observing the guys. I wasn't observing the guys urinating, but I mean, I was in their space, definitely in a male space. And I found that there was a lot of information that people would say when they're in the bathroom, it was an enclosed space. It was a space that's a private space that they could write something on the wall and no one would know who did it. And it would stay also amongst males. That's correct. That's exactly right. So therefore, it was something that was, it was very also primal and subconscious. So there were things that were said you would not say consciously, But unconsciously, you would say, and it was funny. You just let it out. That's right. So that gave me the impetus to do the Fuck Vietnam series. And it was all, of course, against Vietnam. Now, the Vietnam time frame was a conscription draft. So therefore, all the people who went to school were drafted. They didn't yeah, want to yeah, go to yeah. Vietnam. Why should I go to Vietnam? You know? And get killed and for what, you know, et cetera. So there was a lot of protests. Millions of people protested all the time against the war. So I was doing these large paintings that were quite explosive, that were giant phalluses, a Union Jackoff flags, a lot of plays on words. And so I did these large phalluses that were built out from the canvases, and they were painted in a very expressionistic way. And so I did those pieces. And then when I got to New York, I started doing screw series. And then the screw series was screw, screwing, being screwed. It's a word play also, yeah. And there was a lot of things that the time frame had 
hardware and stuff like that. I did a hardware series, you know, and a, and a screw series. Because those are tools that are also as well as the fellows associated with maleness. That's correct. And they're associated with power. And then I made a series that a screw became a penis. It was a flathead screw, a roundhead screw, and then it became a phallus. So therefore, I used that trajectory. And the phalluses that I had, the one that I, I've used the most is the horizontal, which is a combination of a screw and a phallus, a very strong image of what it is. Some of these drawings were nine feet by 30 feet. Some were smaller. But size matters. Size matters, especially with the big dicks. They also matter because it infantilizes, especially the men who look at them. And women liked it. Men liked it. Gay women liked it. Gay men liked it. It was Everyone liked it for different reasons. When you showed those works at Air Gallery, it was a success because I thought probably there were also people that felt offended. Well, I'll tell you something. There may be people that felt offended. They were overwhelmed by it. But nevertheless, it was a success in terms of an art world success. The art world, in a way, rewards people who do outrageous stuff if it's yeah. within their purview. But nevertheless, I didn't even realize that. I was just doing what I wanted to do, and that's what I wanted to do. So that's how it worked out. Mm -hmm. Where do you draw this self-confidence from? You know, I'll tell you something. I don't know. I think that from my background, I was always very funny. And my father rewarded me for that. My mother didn't, mm. by the way. She thought it was impertinent and, you know, and out of line and all that. But my father rewarded me for being outrageous, at scale, and funny. Mm. And in essence, I continue that with my imagery. Okay. So I had that reward as a child, although I only remembered that in hindsight, not at the time. And when I did these pieces, they were really about, the screw drawings were about sexuality, they were about anti-war, and they were about feminism. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was possible to do them because it was also the time of the sexual revolution? Do you think you could have done that in the 50s? First, I don't know, because the 50s, I was a child. And also, you see, I always did what I wanted to do. I did not look around and see what people were doing and do work that was similar, which a lot of artists do. I didn't do that. When I was looking at your work, I thought like, oh, is there anything that she reminds me of? Right. And then I thought, no. And I was wondering if you have any influences or artists you admire. I really don't see an influence, which is rare. You know, I'll tell you something, it's funny because Jack Twerkoff, an artist who was the head of the art department, the chairman when I was going to Yale, He said, you know, everyone else starts out with work that's already been seen and then continues from there. You just go with what you want to do. But he said it in a way that was negative. He didn't say it in a way that was a positive thing to do. He just said it as a, more of a put down. Mm, okay. But nevertheless, that didn't stop me. You see, at the time, I figured if I get nothing out of this work in terms of recognition in terms of money, in terms of sales, in terms of gallery, at least I've done what I want to do. 
And that was my reward. Mm. And that's what actually helped me continue for so many years without getting recognition. How did you deal with all this rejection or also with non-possibilities that you were not able to show your work? How was that as an internal process? How did you deal with that? I have to say that I'm usually very positive about it because things have worked out well for me at this moment. But I'll tell you something, I was very depressed over it. Mm. I did not have a one-person show. After I left AIR Gallery, I had a show at Brooke Jackson Yolis, a gallery, a commercial gallery of town. And then after that, I did not have a show in New York for almost 25 years. Now, that's, that's a generation or so. So that is enormous amount of time. And I was very supportive of my friends who were doing well. But that is not enough to sustain you all the time. And I was getting very depressed over it. I have to say that it was not a good time for me because of it. So I'm not a saint. I want things. I don't resent what other people have, but I certainly wanted much more for myself than I was getting. Mm. And when did it start that you felt that the times were changing and people were starting to give more attention to your work? Well, you know what happened? I had a friend, uh, Joan Semmel, who uh, was showing at this gallery, Mitchell Algus. And she said, I'm going to recommend that you're in a group show there. And we called it the F word was the show. It could be feminism, could be fuck, whatever. And he, then he offered me a one person show, which I took. And from there, then Paul McCarthy who owns the gallery that I'm connected to in California, the Box LA, mm -hmm. he came to New York, serendipity. He just happened to come there at that time. And he was looking at an artist that he was interested in showing at his gallery in LA. And so he saw my work and he said, we've got to show her. I want to buy some of the pieces. And when his daughter Mara McCarthy, who is the dealer, who is the director of the gallery, when she came to New York, she wanted to come to my studio. That's how things started for me. So it was an artist who actually saw it, the quality of the work. That's exactly right. Paul McCarthy. And Paul remembered my work from another time frame, from the time frame of 1973, when I had gotten a great deal of coverage in 1973, 74, because there was a show called Focus. It was a woman's show that was in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Civic Center. And there were four women who curated that show, Marsha Tucker of the Whitney Museum and Donnie Court, Philadelphia Museum, Cindy Nemzer, Feminist Art Journal, Lila Katz, and a sculptor. And they picked me as being one of the artists, by the way. And they had a range of artists from beginning artists and starting their career, up and coming artists, to very well-known artists. So when I sent them a photo of the piece that was going to be in the show, the director of the Civic Center said, oh my God, we can't show that. That is just horrible. That's a big penis, you know, et cetera. What's going to happen? You know, horrible. Children will be Maine forever, you know, et cetera, as if this was a kindergarten show. And then it went all the way up to Mayor Rizzo, who was a very reactionary mayor of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And then I got a lot of, a lot of coverage. A lot of artists, you know, were very supportive. 
artists are really supportive of work that's been censored. So I had enormous, enormous amount of coverage, New York Times and many art magazines and stuff. So that's why a lot of people knew my work from that time frame with this chubby screw. And then it looks like a head of a penis, you know. And then I just was dead in the water after that. On one hand, you had this great success. That's correct. But nothing really came out of this. That's right. And not only that, there was a petition sent around with all these very famous people, you know, all the magazine editors, as well as very famous artists, museum directors. They all signed, you know, my work should be reinstated, but it never was reinstated. After that, nothing happened. I was just dead in the water for so many years. You were also an activist. I mean, it's sort of like That's you did correct. your work, but then you also engage yourself in, in certain groups and you were an early part of the Guerrilla Girls. So That's can correct. you tell me a little bit about that, how this came about, how that started? Well, I'll tell you frankly, the Guerrilla Girls was a great group. That group started much later, in the beginning 80s, a little later. What happened is the Museum of Modern Art had a show of 166 artists, and only 13 were women. And some of those women were part of a group, you know, like a male and female team. And Kennison McShine, who was a really good curator, he had said that if you're not in this show, you better reevaluate your career, really think about what you're doing. So that got the Gorilla Girls started. That's what started us. And they decided to use the play on words too with the gorilla girls and we had a gorilla mask that was the monkey the monkey mask but we also had a gorilla group by the way it worked out very well in terms of that and everyone wanted a photograph of girls with short skirts and we were young then uh, <laughs> that time has passed Danielle <laughs> oh well young in spirit very young in spirit that's one thing about my work my work is young in spirit and you know what also I keep moving, but I worked all the time. So therefore, when I was rediscovered at a much later time, it was not only the work that I was doing currently, it was also the backlog of so many years, the fuck Vietnam, the screw drawings, the signature pieces. I made my own signature as a piece because The screws were my signature at one time, and then my signature became my signature. And it was literally a signature. So it was about stardom. It was about fame. It was about male posturing, and it's about ego. Not only that, then I went to do cunt pieces. And the cunt pieces I did was I equated the Big Bang with women's power. So this is when the vagina started It's both genitalia, but how are the phalluses and the cunts related? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. It's a power symbol, too. And it's a power symbol because the birth is what women are so extraordinary. That's one of the things that they are so extraordinary, that they can give birth. And that is something that has created a lot of problems with men being very jealous of the fact that women can give birth and they cannot do that. So it's not the penis envy, it's, it's the vagina envy. That's right. There's a, a tremendous amount of vagina envy. That's exactly right. There's also penis envy, too, because it's a power symbol, too. Mm -hmm. And it's been used as a power symbol. But I used the Big Bang and the birth of the universe 
and equated that with a human birth. And the vagina had teeth because women have teeth. And I thought that some women would be angry over the rage that women have, but I didn't find that to be the case. Not much of it, not much of it at all. But there was a time with feminism that a lot of curators, when they would have a feminist show, they would not include me because of the fact they thought that it could be only self-referential. Penises were not feminist? That's right. Penis were not feminist. It had to be a vag. It had to be a vagina. That was it. And a lot of the feminists who were doing vaginas felt that I shouldn't be in their club is what it came down to. But nevertheless, I wheedled my way in the door <laughs> with my big cops and it worked out. That's it. You know. It's like such strong imagery. That's right. As you also mentioned in some of your interviews, that it's always the sexuality, the anti-war, that it's always coupled with humor. That's correct, yes. So that you can say very strong stuff like sugar-coated. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know something that's very important? For me, I have a very strong sense of humor, so that's important. And for example, when I had a show at the Box LA, the box was a sexual term, and I had done pieces long before I was in the box LA, that was said a cock in the box, like a jack in the box, a, a play on that. And I had that as a symbol of the show that I had at the box LA. So each time I had a show, I would have these great titles, you know, uh, for example, money shot, which is a, a porn term. So I've used money shot as a term, which was anti-Trump. I despise Donald Trump and everything he stood for. Yeah, you did very, very clear paintings about that. That's right. And it was very important for me to say what I wanted to say about him. And it was a very troubling time. Now, I had problems getting that work out, too, because I know that Adam Weinberg, the director of the Whitney, had said to me that Littman, who was then the director of the Drawing Center, who had given me a show, and I called the show Cabinet of Horrors. He had in mind something very neutral, but that was never my intention. Neutral was never my intention. So I had a show of that. As soon as Donald Trump came out, I knew that he was very bad news. But a lot of dealers said, oh, give him a chance. You know, we don't really know. And they had collectors who were for Donald Trump. So, and they didn't know if they could sell the work. They have their own agenda. But even anti-Trumpers, probably they don't want to have Trump in the house as well. That's correct. Even people who were very sympathetic. Mm -hmm. um, may not want to have a big Trump painting right in their living room. That's exactly right. Yeah. But as far as I understand, you just need to get that stuff out That's no correct. matter what. That's correct. And so how did all of that affect you? Like privately, you said like there was this time when you were depressed. Yes. But was it always that you said, it doesn't matter, I keep on going as long as I can? Well, I guess I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. The only way I made a living was teaching part-time at universities. And I, I did not get a lot of money as a result. These part-time adjunct jobs do not pay very well. And at that time, you could live on very little air and water. That's not what can happen now. But nevertheless, I kept going because that's what I was meant to do. That's the core of what I'm about. It's my rage at injustice, and that's what's very important to me. And I'll tell you something. 
My father wanted to go to Columbia when he graduated high school. He got a scholarship to Columbia, and then the market fell down, so he didn't have any money. So he went to the University of Alabama. God, oh my God, University of Alabama, and he told me about lynchings and that that men would put on Klan outfits. By the way, just to, like you're going out to a you know PTA meeting or something like that. So. He was very rageful about the injustice for the blacks. There was also the McCarthy time when I was in grammar school. So we were very aware of anti-Semitism too. This was instilled in me as a child. So I took on that mantle myself is, is really some of the things that added to my rage and the core of what I'm about and the core of, of, of rage about justice. So I just kept going with what I had to do. Yeah. Mm. So this rage turned out to be like a very powerful force of creation for you. That's correct. That's exactly right. It was a force of creation. This is still the drive you have until now. That's correct. That's right. And I'll tell you something, even now, When I'm much older, I'm 78 now, and I'm now working on a series that I like very much called Gaslighting. It has become a more generic term so people know what it is, but it was originally taken from a movie. It was a play and then it became a movie. With Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer. Yes, yeah. exactly, where he undermines her sanity by denying all the reality that she has. And this gaslighting can be a very powerful tool. Well, it's like fake news. That's correct. And it's not just about Donald Trump. It's about the way people behave toward each other. Oh, no, you're completely wrong. Oh, no, you've gotten that right wrong. This is the way it is. I know I'm the parent. And it is very undermining. And I've been doing a lot with this gaslighting, which I think is very good. And I also, with all the people that have been murdered, the black people that have been murdered. I use hot hands. Now, hot hands is a term that's a basketball term, that it originally was that when a basketball player is getting the ball in the hoop, which is sexual, getting the ball in the hoop, they pass the ball to him because they think he has a better chance of getting the ball in the hoop. Mm -hmm. Now, that's actually not statistically correct, but people think that. But I use hot hands. And then there's a lot of metaphors Hot hands can be also sexual. It could also be, you know, a hot artist, but it also could be hot in terms of abuse. So there's there's just many ways you can take that issue. So I'm still dealing with these issues that enrage me. These are the issues of the day. Yes. There's a lot of content in your work, you know, the political, yes. the sexual, the humor. Right. Also, it's very much related to American culture, to the American discourse. That's right. Do you ever think also about plain formal things like color? Which colors do you use? How should that look? How? Which words are you exactly using? How are they placed? All these things? Or is this more coming in a very spontaneous, eruptive process? I went and had formal training. You'll use formal training in terms of my work. You may or may not be aware of it because the colors and the message is so strong that the other parts fall back. But that doesn't mean you're not trying to make something that works formally because formally is very important. Now, I know that with the uh, gaslighting, the money shot show that I had at Cole Kasman Gallery mm -hmm. in New York, 
I use fluorescent colors. And the fluorescent, by the way, I had the show works under black light and it works without black light. And I'm very aware of the formality, the composition of the work too. Now, there's a certain spontaneity, of course, just like with abstract expressionists, you get spontaneity. But that doesn't mean you put something on the right side and then you want to have it balanced on the left side or you want the image to be central so that it has a pow right in the center so that you get it immediately. So there's a certain amount of formality that actually works very well. And I used many times fluorescent paint because it's acrylic to what I use. And then I use oil paint on top of it. So you have a combination of oil and fluorescent. What happened was when I started using fluorescent paint, Mitchell Algus had come to my studio and said, have you seen what this looks like under black light? And I said, wow, another light bulb went off. And I sent my assistant out to find black lights. I live in Chinatown near the Bowery, and they have a lot of lighting places. So he went out and found fluorescent lights, and we put them on the pieces, and they just came alive. The shows look like a window in a church just sung right out, just came right out. So it became three-dimensional and just enveloped the viewer. So it worked very well for me. So sometimes I showed these paintings under black light and sometimes not, depending. You very often work very large. So that enhances also this quality, the size has this overwhelming quality. Yes, Um, yes. A completely different question I also have is... Right now, the face of activism in the world is female. Yeah. If it's like Pussy Riot or Greta Thunberg right. or other women, right. do you feel connected to this new generation? What, what would you say to them? I think go, go, go. <laughs> Absolutely. Keep on moving. And it's good to see women out there. It's good to see women in rage. It's good to see Black Lives Matter. It's good to have women who want to say things that have to do with their issues as well as other issues. So I feel very connected to the rage that they have and also all the stuff that goes on. I think it's fabulous and I do feel connected. Yes. Obviously, you experienced many, many ups and downs in your life. You had long times which were not easy, but now you're really rising up like the phoenix from the ashes. And I wanted to know how your past year was during the pandemic And also, what are your plans and what you would wish for the future? Well, the pandemic, at first, everyone was kind of blindsided. I just came back from going to London, and I had spoken at the Zabudovich collection, and then everything was shut down. It was just unbelievable. And I live in Chinatown, which is always very crowded and busy, and people like Chinese food, and everything shut down. It was like a 50s movie, like a nuclear holocaust had happened, and there was no one there except me. There was a liquor store open. There was one Chinese restaurant on the street. I live on a street with all Chinese restaurants and the post office. And even that was not open many times. And then buses would go by with not one person on the bus. There was not one car on the street. It was a very sad time. And it's funny because people said to me, you know, 
this is actually great because a lot of people can't work and can't go to their jobs and everything. But I, I kept my two assistants on full time, just the way they always work, regardless of not being able to come to my studio. They did things online and stuff like that for me. And I kept them on. And I worked first, not so much. And then I started working a great deal. And right now I'm working a lot on some gaslighting issues that I really love in a new way that's more expressive. And I'm having a show in November, November 18th at Paul Kasman Gallery in New York. So I will be having a show of this gaslighting series. And also I had a large piece that I made in New York two years ago. And a part of this group called the National Academy, and they had three buildings that they subsequently sold because they didn't have enough money to renovate. Anyway, the Academy had this one building that was at one time a classroom. So they gave me a giant studio there. It was like, I don't know, in meters and all that, but 25 foot square at least 25 foot square, 25 foot ceiling, skylights. It was just a killer studio. So I made the biggest paintings I ever made. They were 15 foot high. And I'm going to have a couple of those paintings in the show at Kasman. So anyways, I did this giant piece and it was called Death Universe. This was before the pandemic. The Death Universe was interesting because when I did a lot of these birth universe pieces, I was also thinking of death universe and thinking of black holes eating each other. I was thinking of comets, you know, colliding. And I was also thinking of Donald Trump with Kim Jong-un, you know, egging him on, have a third world war and stuff like that. Actually, now it speaks for the pandemic. So what happens in art is that you do one thing in one time and it actually resonates in terms of another time frame too, if you're lucky. If you're tuned in with your subconscious, probably right. you pick up just on the spirit of the times. That's exactly right. And I do that a great deal. And I'll tell you something, I don't always think about stuff. What happens is I do think spontaneously. And then I think about it later in terms of the ramifications and what it actually means. So it's not only that you're thinking of something and figuring out how to represent that. I go into my own subconscious and come out with what I consider the strongest thing says what I want to say. And that's so important to me. Yeah. I also made a print that's being, I have a lot of prints, but there was a print that Kasman is having is called Equality. In the 90s, I did a lot of word pieces and those word pieces were shown at Cabinet of Horror Show and they were done with charcoal and charcoal. I love charcoal, by the way. It's so great. It's so mushy and so, <laughs> it's so filthy. I just love it. You get your hands in it and I, I just love it. And I wrote the word Equality, Liberty, Uh, truth and some of these other things. And they were very large wording and they were done in the beginning of the 90s. And we made a large print of that that will be shown at the Kasman Gallery. That's some of the things that are happening right now. Any wishes you have for the near future? I wish the world were a safer place that is just a safer and a better place. I know for a long time, I was listening to the news very late at night, which I still do, I have to say, I'm and poor and stuff like that, uh, very late at night, and would keep me up for a couple hours. So I'd go to bed at three o'clock in the morning, regardless of my age, I still am a late night person. There's so many difficulties. There's so many people who are 
left out of work and migrants and we're talking climate change and we're talking so many issues that we have now. And I wish that the world would settle down and be able to handle these issues. That would be my thought. Yeah. Actually, there is one question and yeah. it's a personal interest I have, sure. which is really about your private life. Everything is about your art. Everything is about your activism. Sure, sure. What role play men in your private life? Where do you stand there? Well, you know something? I've had relationships with guys and stuff. But, you know, I'll tell you something. The strongest relationship I've had is with my work. Actually, going right into the work. But that's been my strongest relationship. That's been the most continual. That is the most rewarding in my life. And I've figured out my life. So, therefore, that's been the center. And I have to say that a lot were, were distractions. And some were a lot of fun distractions, I might say. And some were quite rewarding and quite loving. But I would say, honestly, that my life has really been about my journey with art. And I would not worry about that I wouldn't have things to say because I will find things to say anyway. Thank you so much, Judith. Thank you. For more information on Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast, follow us on Instagram at Voices on Art and at van underscore horn underscore Düsseldorf, visit our website van-horn.net and subscribe to Voices on Art on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or the platform of your choice. Thank you for listening to Voices on Art, the Van Horn Gallery podcast hosted by Daniela Steinfeld. Stay tuned and connect. <laughs>